Hello and welcome to Brexit Unspun. This is where we debunk the political spin around Brexit. I'm Shona Jenkins. Today, we're looking at the impact of Brexit on Ireland, and in particular, the border between Ireland, which will remain in the EU, and Northern Ireland, which will not. The Brexit campaign was fuelled by the slogan, let's take back control of our borders. But the implications of that for Ireland were barely mentioned. Now, the question of the Irish border, which was long obvious to the Irish, is becoming starkly clear. Most Irish people in the North and the South do not want the border to change from its current, mostly invisible state. But a hard Brexit could turn it into a 500-kilometre-long customs post, with queues, paperwork and perhaps even the presence of armed security. That would disrupt cross-border trade, which runs to about €3 billion a year, and bring back memories of the Troubles, when the border was fortified with military installations and manned by soldiers with guns. Here with me to discuss this is Vincent Boland, our Ireland correspondent, and Tony Barber, our Europe editor. Vincent, if I could turn to you first, what are people in Ireland saying about this on both sides of the border? They're saying, Shiona, that it cannot happen and that it must not happen, and that everything must be done to avoid it. One of the curious things about Brexit is that although it has clearly divided Northern Ireland because some unionists are in favour of Brexit and most nationalists are against it, it has closely united the island in opposition to any return of any manifestation of a visible hard border that involves security, whether it's customs posts, security checks, nobody on either side of the border wants that. And what they want the Brexit negotiations to deliver is the status quo, which is no border. Now, some people have suggested that if the border doesn't remain open, it could reverse the gains of the Good Friday Agreement and even reignite the troubles. Do you think these fears are well-founded? Yes. You have to bear in mind that the question of Brexit has really reopened and sharpened the divisions between orange and green within Northern Ireland, by which I mean that the orange community, which is traditionally the unionists, a majority of unionists voted in favour of Brexit. And a majority of nationalists, who are the green community, voted against Brexit. So it has, if you like, reopened the traditional fault line in the north between unionists and nationalists that the Good Friday Agreement and the peace that has existed in the province for the last 20 years had essentially papered over and made more or less invisible. So I think that the threat to the peace in Northern Ireland comes from that reopening of old divisions that had been healed to a certain extent by an immense amount of diplomatic and political investment by Ireland, by Britain, by America and by the European Union over a 20-year period. So there is a question now over the peace process because of the way that Brexit threatens to unravel that. Now, Northern Ireland's Democratic Unionists, or DUP, have become a vital partner in Theresa May's government. Do you think this gives them an outsized influence in the Brexit negotiations? No. The DUP is actually deeply divided by Brexit, funnily enough. The party, which is the biggest unionist party and pro-British party in Northern Ireland by a long way, was in favour of Brexit. But really, even on that stance, it was quite divided because the pro-Brexit stance was imposed on the leadership in Northern Ireland by its collection of MPs at Westminster, who are diehard sovereigntists and Brexiteers who are very close to the right wing of the Conservative Party, people such as David Davis and Liam Fox. The leadership in Northern Ireland around Arlene Foster is much softer on Brexit. 
and is very much arguing now in favour of a soft Brexit and certainly for a soft border. So I think that the DUP is very divided on Brexit and it's not in any position to assert itself on Brexit because of divisions within the party, but also because of divisions within Northern Ireland. And therefore, I think it's simply going to roll over and accept whatever Brexit is delivered by the Tories. Turning to you, Tony, how does the Irish border question fit into the timetable for the Brexit talks? Well, officially, the Irish question is one of three issues that have to be sorted out in the first phase of the talks, the others being the question of citizens' rights and the second being Britain's divorce bill. In practice, almost no progress has been made at all on the Irish question. And there are several reasons for that. One is that the Theresa May government didn't really pay much attention to it, I think, when it first got started. And then when it did decide the sort of Brexit it wanted, it went for the hard version of out of the single market, out of the customs union. At virtually the same moment it did that, the power-sharing executive in Northern Ireland collapsed between the unionists and the nationalists. And then you had two sets of elections, one local in Northern Ireland, in which the nationalists did very well, thus, I think, alarming some unionist voters to the point that when you had a British general election in June, they fled into what Vincent was calling the kind of orange camp. So the effect of the last 12 months has been to polarise the two communities in Northern Ireland into orange and green much, much more than they were in the days before Britain's referendum. And that has stimmed progress in the Brexit talks. The second factor is that it's extremely hard to see how you can get real progress, real concrete agreements on the Irish question until you know exactly what the British government wants as the final version of its new relationship with the EU. Right now, the divisions in London are so enormous that it's very hard to say what they might want out of it. As a result, I think it's likely that you'll see some rather vague general expressions of a determination to do the right thing by the island of Ireland and rather park the detailed questions until towards the very end of the uh, negotiations in the second half of next year. By then, you know, who knows where we might stand. I would just add to what Vincent said about this question of how the process has brought back the old question of the status of the island as a whole. We should keep in mind that the last Irish Premier, Ender Kelly, secured a declaration from the EU that if ever voters in Northern Ireland should vote to be part of a united Ireland, then Northern Ireland would immediately be admitted as part of a united Ireland into the EU. And I think this has actually brought back the question of the potential unification of Ireland towards the centre of politics much, much more than it ever was in the era when Britain and Ireland were separate members of the EU. Tony is absolutely right. And I think Ender Kenny's achievement, if you want to call it that, in putting the question of a united Ireland squarely on the agenda in Brussels has been that it has allowed Dublin to buy very much into the EU 27 position on Brexit rather than adopting a more sort of pro-British one. I think that it's very clear from talking to officials and politicians here in Dublin that what really matters ultimately to Ireland is its relationship with Europe and that while it wants the best possible deal for Britain and the least disruptive for Ireland, things are no longer the same. So, Tony, do you think that the Irish question could be a deal breaker in the Brexit talks? 
I think there are bigger issues that would be a deal breaker. I mean, it would be linked to them. Yes, that's certainly true. I don't think on its own it would be a deal breaker. I mean, at least we could draw some small comfort, I think, from the fact that each side, by which I mean the EU27 and London, are trying to speak with a measure of responsibility about the future of the island of Ireland, and that I suppose we should regard as promising. But we should also be aware that the prospect of a border re-emerging has actually had some rather disturbing consequences in the sense that there's now a real border dispute, so to speak, concerning Loch Foyle, which divides or rather rests on both the Northern Ireland side of the border in County Londonderry and the Irish side of the border in County Donegal. I mean, this is an issue that nobody even paid any attention to for a long, long, long time, and now it's suddenly re-emerged. And it's the kind of thing that is extremely difficult to see being resolved in a sensible way unless you have no border as now and some sort of special status for Northern Ireland. But the risk there is that that might not satisfy certain people in Theresa May's cabinet and certain unionists in the north. Now, as you mentioned, the special status, are there any other creative solutions to the problem being considered? Special status is definitely being considered. What it would mean in practice, we'll have to see. I mean, something is going to have to be done to compensate or replace the very large amounts of EU money, particularly agricultural subsidies that go to Northern Ireland. I mean, basically, the lion's share of farming income in Northern Ireland comes from the EU. I mean, is the British government going to carry on doing that in place of the EU? We know it will for, I think, one year up to, I think it's 2020. But after that, well, we don't know. Yes, special status is something that's being demanded a lot by Sinn Féin, which is the main Irish Nationalist Party in the North. And there is some sympathy for it in Dublin. And it's clearly a very divisive issue, you know, because it would be seen by a lot of unionists as yet another lever that extracts Northern Ireland that little bit more from the union with the United Kingdom. But as Tony says, I mean, how the enormous amounts of money that come from Brussels to Northern Ireland are going to be replaced after 2020 is going to be a very big question. And I think that there's a lot of work to be done on that question. And one of the solutions to that is that it stay in the EU in some form in order to qualify for that kind of subsidy. Whether that can be agreed between all the sides, we'll have to see. Well, finally, I'd like to ask both of you how you see things playing out. Can we start with you, Tony? Uh, (laughs) Well, as long as each side continues to talk with a level of maturity that suggests they want a solution, then I wouldn't be completely gloomy about it. But I I really do think that the deep, deep, deep political divisions inside the Westminster Parliament, the two main political parties, all this is holding up progress. I think that doesn't augur well for getting concrete, sensible results on the Irish problem. Vincent? Yes, I agree. I think there are probably two different scenarios, depending on whether you look at it in the short term or the long term. I think in the short term, probably there's a bigger chance that the negotiations between Britain and Europe will break down than that they will succeed in presenting a successful deal that can be trumpeted by both sides. I think in the longer term, given that Brexit has completely upended the constitutional settlement in the United Kingdom, I think as far as the Irish are concerned, I think that the status of Northern Ireland is certainly undermined by Brexit and brought into question. And that will have enormous ramifications across the island of Ireland and also for relations between Ireland and Britain, I think, over many years to come. And that is something that the Irish were not really prepared for when Brexit happened. And, uh, you know, 
one of the reasons why the Irish government and the entire sort of policy making and business establishment in Dublin, for example, was so adamantly opposed to Brexit was that it threatened a political nightmare scenario. And that's what it really has delivered. And there's an awful long way to go on that front yet. Well, thanks to Vincent and Tony, and thank you for listening. This is the last episode in our current series, but we'll be back in the autumn with more candid discussions on what Brexit will mean for Britain's trade, economy, public institutions and private sector. We're also going to be inviting contributions from listeners, so if you'd like to be part of our show, please email us at brexitunspun, that's all one word, at ft.com if you have a story relating to Brexit that you think deserves to be heard or if you'd like to suggest a topic for future episodes. We'd be delighted in the meantime if you wanted to review or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you download. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.